Hi, I'm Natalie, and welcome to Infinitely Irrational, where I discuss the real, eccentric, and complex history of math. In each episode, I unearth the wild stories behind some famous or not-so-famous mathematicians. Today we are talking about a pair of mathematicians and their famous feud, Sir Isaac Newton and Gottfried Leibniz. You know the drill. This episode will answer the following questions. How can you ensure your cat gets fed? What's the worst way to test a hypothesis? What do either of these have to do with math? Let's find out. So hi everyone, I am so excited today because we have a special guest, Ben Orlin, author of Math with Bad Drawings and Change is the Only Constant, The Wisdom of Calculus in a Madcap World. Ben, I'm so excited you're here. Yeah, thank you, Natalie. I'm excited to be here. This is a longtime listener, first time caller kind of experience for me. <laughs> Friend of the podcast, which I love saying. Friend of the program, yeah. (laughs) Um, So today, listeners, we are going to talk about something that I've been teasing for a while. Every chance I get, the math version of Star Wars versus Star Trek, Newton versus Leibniz. Dum, dum, dum. (laughs) My own sound effect. So I think, Ben, um, what we talked about was we would start by talking about Newton because, what, he's just the louder one? <laughs> yeah, he's, I don't know, he's, he's either real loud or just quiet and deadly. Um, I tend to think of him more as quiet and deadly, but he's definitely, he's the one, he's the one who all the poets have written about. Like William he's Wordsworth does not, yeah, William Wordsworth hasn't written any poems about Gottfried Leibniz, whereas everybody, Alexander Pope and Wordsworth, all the big like British poets have kind of gotten in their little, their little couplet about Newton. I love that you say the British poets. Note that we don't have German and French poets, right? Yeah, or do we? Yeah, I don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, French. I mean, you're just talking about Voltaire recently, and Voltaire actually was a huge. Newton oh, you're fan. right. So oh. the French, the French liked Newton too. Yeah. Um, well, after Emily, and well, you know, with her translating his book into French, right. which is the only still, I can't believe that's the only version. You know, in the last episode of Emily, Rob and I were just talking, I said it's the only version that remains to this day translated into French. And he was like, well, I wonder what edition there are. I was like, one. (laughs) (laughs) Right, probably a very late printing though. I'm gonna bet they've had to do more than one printing. So true. Okay, so so let's let's chat a little about Senor Newton. So, So he was born Christmas day, we know. Yeah, that's right. It is a little confusing because the, like the dates have changed since then, right? Have you come across this? No. Like the, the calendar got rewritten. So he was born, I think he was born Christmas Day. I can't remember if it's based on our current calendar or on the calendar he was using at the time, but they're actually not the same thing. That's fascinating. Now I'm going to Google that. Is a man with two birthdays. <laughs> hey, you know what, though? I would much prefer to celebrate um, on birthdays because there are more of them. So that he has two birthdays is, yeah. I mean, that's fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. So you're saying you yeah, have born Christmas Day, mm-hmm. born Christmas, Christmas Day. And so you've done a lot of research on him and you had sent this little excerpt that you talked about when he was a small child. <laughs> so when I was reading this in your book, the calculus book, which is I love it, by the way. Uh, but it says that I took a bodkin and put it betwixt mm. my eye. And the bone as near to the backside of my eye as I could. And pressing my eye, there appeared several white, dark, and colored circles. Yeah, this is right. 
Yeah, this, this, to me, this is like the most extraordinary. This, this tells you that Newton is a special kid right from the start. Mm-hmm. Right, He's born Christmas Day. He, uh, f- His father died before he was born. His father died while he was still in his mother's womb. And so he's got a bit of a tragic story right there from the start. Mm-hmm. And then he's, as you'd kind of expect, he's kind of this obsessive kid, big into tinkering and building stuff. And he's like, you know, the neighborhood fixer guy who, you know, fixes all the, builds his little windmills and stuff like that. And then, yeah, it was sometime I think he was a teenager when he was like, huh, I wonder how vision works. And this, of course, would become part of his research. This, you know, optics would become a, right, a big right. part of his contributions to science. And just to me, there's no better story for capturing the kind of person he was. He was like, well, I want to know how vision works. It's got something to do with these eyes. I'm going to stick a needle in my eye and see what happens. <laughs> like you do. <laughs> As one does, right? Yeah, it's it's like the total opposite if you've got, you know, folks like Descartes, who was a generation or two earlier, mm-hmm. and, and Leibniz to some degree, who were very, right, in the rationalist tradition. So really the theory was that only by kind of pure thought and sitting back in your armchair and just thinking your best, deepest thoughts, that was how you would apprehend truth. And that was not at all how Newton thought of things. He was like, no, 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 you got an Practical. eye. Got to stick it in my eye. <laughs> you got, the you got, only you got, way. I got an eye, I got a needle. Like, let's put them together. Let's see the magic happen. Um, and the answer is you get those dark and colored circles. And so the other thing that I want to point out about this is that, you know, you noted in one of your sections here that he had a cat that would basically eat all his food because he was, I guess, poking stuff in his eye. And he wouldn't eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is. I don't know if this is, I don't know if we have any actual historical documentation of the cat, but I, I like it as a story. It's a legend that gets passed around that yeah, that Newton was so he'd get so lost in his books that you know meals would be brought to him. He wouldn't touch them, and so his house cat just got fat off of his meals. Like the house cat was eating his meals for him. First of all, that's amazing. Second of all, I I feel that in my soul because when I'm reading a book. We were just talking about reading Stormlight Archive and all these long epic novels. I also do not like to be disturbed. And so sometimes it's like, hey, can you come eat your food? I'll be right there several hours later. So I feel that. <laughs> although, right. although neither of my dogs is fortunate enough to grow obese from, from my meals. <laughs> I'm sure they'd appreciate that. Um, maybe the problem is that there's two of them. That's true. That's right? true. They got to they split the winnings. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and one's bigger. I'm hoping they'll work together, but you know, we'll yeah, see. Yeah, we'll give, see. give the little one a little, a little <laughs> chance. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, Newton to me, I, yeah, he resonates with a, a lot of mathematicians I know, actually, mm-hmm. that kind of just that obsessive, the ability to get yourself totally lost in a problem, which is not a quality I have at all. I've missed like maybe four meals in my life. <laughs> I, I do not miss my meals. <laughs> Food is is the best. I think it's interesting that we're talking about Newton right now. I feel lucky that to have a podcast even, first of all, because I think that looking back historically at this, like we'll be able to capture this moment in time. And this particular moment in time is pretty interesting because we are still dealing with COVID, which is our version, I guess, hopefully not our version of the bubonic plague. Yeah, well, yeah, it's our plague. We've got we've got better medicine than he had. So yeah hasn't had quite the devastating effect that the plague did on London, but it certainly has been been tough. Definitely. And and so the, the bubonic plague hit. He was at the time in Cambridge and he basically said, you know, Cambridge was like, nope, we're closing down just like our schools did a year ago and still trying to figure out what to do right now. And so he was fortunate enough to head to his home where he grew up in the country. And, you know, like you said, he gets lost in books. And so that was fine for him because super introvert, right? All those memes about, yeah, quarantine life hasn't changed me for all the introverts. And so this was Newton's ideal state. 
And so what he decides to do is he just, he kind of grabs a book and then he starts taking notes, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah. He starts taking notes on just, you know, some of the important math to him, right? Notes on Descartes and uh, Euclid. And I, I'm not going to be able to rattle off all the names. You know, Wallace was a, was an influential thinker for him. But yeah, er- earlier mathematicians. And he's, he's got some books in front of him of theirs. And yeah, he just starts kind of writing down thoughts and notes and extrapolations from their work. All the mathematicians we've talked about, that's kind of how they all start, right? Where it's like, okay, I'm going to look at this one mathematician's work and I'm just going to noodle on it for a bit. And I think it's great because one, at the time when everything was coming out and, you know, like, obviously this is spoiler alert, this is going to lead to calculus at the time. Like, this is what people were doing. Even now, even like, if you think about Fermat, I don't know why I'm like on him right now, because he's my favorite, I guess. You know, oh, that's I, I love people, Fermat. Everybody yeah, loves Fermat. Exactly. It's it's a great story. But, you know, people like would take what he did and they would write a little bit and they would focus on one small piece to break it apart just a little more. And I think, too, it's funny because when we get to talking about Leibniz, that's what he did, too. So it's it's funny. It's, it's just interesting to me. So he's he's got his his books, he's got his his notes, and then he's got he's, his obese house cat, you know, his obese house cat him, and yeah. his one eye. Or <laughs> <laughs> I think the eye recovered. I think I think he's okay. <laughs> he basically at this time came up with a bunch of brilliant stuff. Yeah, this gets called his miracle year. I, I can't pronounce the Latin, but you know, honest mirabilis. I don't know what the vowels are. Mirabilis. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, I, I pride myself on not knowing any Latin whatsoever. I um, keep trying to tell Rob we should learn Latin because can you imagine like we're in an elevator and we just start talking Latin? <laughs> like people would think, you know, I am always <laughs> believing in the supernatural, and people would be like, "These people, what is it? A ghost? What's happening here?" It's really very right. <laughs> these people from the distant past. These time travelers. Did Rome have time travelers? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I wonder if they just think like, huh, man, they're, they're, they're weird. Italian, their Italian accents are really clunky. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Like, very stuffy Italians in this elevator. <laughs> <with me. laughs> but yeah, he's, you know, during this time, what, what did he do? He did the laws of motion. The, the, you know, some of the lights and the optics stuff. Yeah, the optics. About. Yeah. Yeah. The idea. I mean, just the simple idea that white light is made up of all the colors put together is made up of the spectrum. And that was something he was figuring out then. And then even then, right, like that impacted what Emily and Voltaire and Mapertui and all of them were doing. And then also we would be remiss if if we didn't talk about the apple on his head, right? right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's funny. It, it, it's sort of knowing that so many stories from history are made up. You sort of figure like, okay, this one's got to be made up. Like an apple hits him on the head. And, and the, the hitting him on the head part was made up later. I, I don't know uh-huh. who added that in. But that, that wasn't like for another century or two that people started talking about the apple actually hitting him on the head. I guess the story, the, the original story wasn't interesting enough because the apple just falls. And it's like, right yeah, around we need, the we need... time when the cat came in, that was when the apple embellishment. We need this have more of a Looney Tunes feel. We need some slapstick <laughs> comedy. We need the apple to fall on his head. We need an <laughs> obese cat. Um, but but the, the original story, Newton himself told a lot, actually, although only towards the end of his life. He, wasn't, he didn't tell it very much earlier. But we have like four different records from different friends of his who he all told this apple story to at the end of his life. I guess he thought it was a really interesting story, even though it's it's like without it hitting him on the head, it's only borderline you know, <laughs> glamorous. Hey, um, this apple fell. Cool story. Glad you yeah. shared it. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Wow. Wow, Isaac. That's you must get out a lot if you're so <laughs> if you're seeing apples fall. But so the apple falls, and then he just has this moment of realization where he looks at the apple and he looks at the moon, I guess. 
and realizes like, what if it's the same force? What if this, whatever this gravity thing is that acts here on earth and draws objects towards the ground, what if that extends indefinitely far outward and the moon is bound by the same force? And so it's this connection between the celestial realm of the moon Mm -hmm. and the terrestrial realm of apples and trees and, and things falling to the ground. In your chapter, I love the little drawing that you had where you're showing the apple falling at different, you know, like if it were on the moon and what that would look oh, like. Yeah. That, that was really fun. Yeah, that's a, that's a classic uh, illustration. I did my own kind of cover version of the illustration with, you know, drawn some stick figure faces. But yeah, it's, it's a classic illustration from the Principia from Newton's masterwork. Which you can shows tell that- I've read it. Yeah, right. Oh, I've read it cover to cover. No, it's in Latin. I, I, don't, I don't read Latin. <laughs> well, you know what's funny is in the Emily trilogy, in one of the episodes, we talk about basically no one read it because he made it so hard to read, which I know we're going to talk about here in a second. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I'm glad right. that you know yours is not in Latin and also is illustrated. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Newton and I have almost opposite approaches to the world, which is, I mean, I, I can't pretend. It sounds that like your team Leibniz. Yes, yeah. Oh, I, I'm totally on team Leibniz. Spoiler. Um, yeah, yeah. Not, not to give it away. I, I, I should be upfront with my my prejudices. <laughs> um, yeah, but no. The, the the diagram is really cool that you were mentioning. It's it's sort of you have a picture of like imagine someone standing on a mountaintop and throwing a baseball or an apple or something, and if you throw it really, really, really far it kind of goes partway around the world before hitting the ground. Mm -hmm. And if you throw it even faster, it'll go almost like halfway around the world because sort of as it falls towards the earth, the earth is curving away from it. Yeah. And so it can sort of go all the way around. And if you throw it really, really fast, then it'll just do a full loop. It keeps falling towards the earth, but as it falls, you know, it's got the horizontal velocity enough that it makes it all the way back around. And that's what orbit is. I mean, orbit is just when you throw the apple fast enough that it circles the whole earth and comes back to where it started. When I was growing up, do you remember like when computers first started being cool and they had this game called gorilla that you could put the angle and you could put the velocity and like the gorilla would throw a banana and oh, it would try cool, to, no. it's yeah. It's so I, I of course gorilla. like what eight bit or something, but it's so cool. <laughs> sure. Like they're standing, I don't know, like King Kongs are standing on either end and you're supposed to try to hit the other one. And you know, so it's, I guess kind of like the precursor to angry birds, except a little bit more mathematical. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. Sounds, sounds like angry birds. The, the except kind of, yeah, more yeah. awesome. It's the OG angry birds. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so, so let's talk a little bit about the language that Newton used for, for his calculus, because yeah. right now, you know, in calculus, you might hear, we're going to listeners, we're going to be mathy right now, prepare yourself, sit down. You hear right now derivatives and integrals and these terms that we're familiar with, but Newton, he did not use those terms. Yeah. Yeah. He talked about, right. So calculus, the way we frame it today, you've sort of got two basic processes, like you said, derivatives and integrals, which are derivative is like freeze time. What's happening? How is, how are things changing at this moment? Like in this mm-hmm. snapshot, you freeze a car as it's moving. How fast is it going? Mm-hmm. Um, the car is going 60 miles an hour at this instant. That's a derivative. And then an integral is adding up infinite little pieces each of the pieces infinitesimally small to get kind of a big hole. So yeah, I think of it as like how, you know, you make a pond out of rain, it's these infinitesimally little small drops of water and they add up to a whole pond though. Um, Man, or, that's such a good analogy. I love that. I like, I almost titled my book actually, the ocean is an integral of rain. Um, Ooh. And then my editor was like, what? Because <laughs> I think if you already know some calculus, it's sort of a nice poetic image. And if you mm-hmm. don't, you're like, what is that book possibly going to be about? That's a very weird title. What a philosopher king thing to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sounds very fancy. I don't know. I, I look forward to that appearing in a song lyric someday. You know, the ocean's in the rain. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. 
Let's see. Yeah, right. But you, you want to talk about the language that, mm-hmm. that Newton uses. Yeah, right. Because he's got, so instead of derivatives, he talks about fluxions, mm-hmm. um, which are just little tiny bits of things. And then fluents, which I, I can't, are fluents integrals? I think fluents are basically anti I think they were, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and, I'm not as positive about that. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to look into that. And we'll, we'll talk more about the language, you know, when we get into the Star Wars versus Star Trek factions. But like we said, we're living in the in the bubonic plague. He's out in the country. So he really wasn't trying to be publishing or doing anything. He went, what, a couple decades without publishing anything. Yeah, you know. yeah it's, it's funny to realize, right, that he he came up with the sort of core ideas of calculus in, in 1665, 1666. And then he was like, yeah, I'm not going to publish that. That's, I'm just going to sit on that for a while. Uh, and then it wasn't until like under a lot of pressure, it was finally, I mean, the Principia relies on calculus, but doesn't actually show any of the calculus. It kind of sweeps it all under the rug. And so he didn't really publish his calculus results, I think, until close to the turn of the century, close to 1700, maybe even right. after. I think you're right, because, you know, like from the Emily stuff at the end of the 1600s, that was when Voltaire and Mapertui were in England and they were like, wow, look at all this cool stuff. And that that was when they got the book. They took it back to France and, you know, in their cafe circuit and the salons, they were like, blah, 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 Newton. And by the way, I pronounced that thing incorrectly. And now I because I didn't Google <laughs> how to pronounce it. So I'm saying Principia and you're saying Principia. I'm like, huh. I've, I've no idea if either one. <laughs> again, again, Latin is not I'm, my I'm language. Gonna have so. to, I'm going to have to Google it now. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah oh, you know, I have no idea. But yeah, so it was around the end of around the end of the century. And again, right, like it was really hard to read by its own definition. It was hard to read. And if I were and, and that's saying something for mathematicians, because like, as I was saying, like for me to read a math book, I have to read each word is important and you have to process it. And I also wouldn't be talking about this with anybody that isn't interested in math. One, because they already look at (laughs) me like, you like math? Oh my gosh, they think I'm insane. And for me to try to talk to them about advanced math, like why would anyone be sharing that? Yeah, Newton, he's he's a funny figure because he's on the one hand, seems in no rush to share his ideas, mm-hmm. right? He's like, he's just sitting on it for two decades. And on the other hand, is so desperate for credit. It's very important to him that people acknowledge that he's the one, right? I mean, we'll, we'll get to obviously later on, we'll talk about the priority dispute and the, mm-hmm. the Star Trek versus Star Wars of it all. But it's it's funny to me, sitting from the 21st century, because my feeling is that he was building on tons of ideas. Tons of ideas were later built on his. He made important contributions. It's sort of like trying to sift out credit is such an arbitrary game. Right. Especially given the norms of the time, which were like you, you published some stuff, but maybe you didn't publish at all. You know, it, we weren't that far removed from a time when like you wanted to keep your methods secret so that you could mm-hmm. dazzle people with them. And they were, you know, they were like for trade secrets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. For Ma or, and, or I think of like Cardano. Like, yeah. I was just going to say Cardano with that guy with the Quartic stuff. Yeah, was Tartaglia. it Tartaglia? Yeah, yeah, Tartaglia, right, right. Where they're doing it, they're, they're doing this Jedi battle where it's like, yeah. right, somebody, somebody toss a cubic into the ring, and we'll both try to solve it, and we'll see who can get it first. They need the uh, Darth Maul light, double-ended lightsaber. Yeah, yeah. Or this, I, 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 something I hadn't thought about in a little while, but I came across when researching my book is that Newton wrote in some letter he did a he wrote like an anagram or a little secret code to something. And this was during his correspondence that I think eventually made it to Leibniz, and uh-huh. he wrote some kind of secret code. Because he wanted to like record what he'd figured out, but keep it still secret. Um, oh my god! And the secret code, when you unscramble it, it's like an anagram for like differential equations are pretty important. <laughs> it's like okay, Newton, that wasn't the you didn't really need to put that one under lock and key, you know? Like okay, differential <laughs> equations are important. <laughs> That's amazing. 
So back to the publishing, though, you said that he didn't publish for a couple of decades, which is, you know, interesting enough in and of itself. But then when he actually did attempt to publish it, which was after years, and it was the Principia or Principia, we aren't sure which. It yeah, we'll say, we'll say Principia. Oh, see, now we've got like three. That one's definitely wrong. That one's definitely wrong. We've got at least three different ways to pronounce. We'll say one each time. It'll be different. Yeah, we should just go for more and more Baroque pronunciations the further we go. (laughs) Principia. And so when he published that, you know, after his couple of years, that was actually the, what, the book that launched a thousand ships, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And and part of the reason, though, I think, was because not only was he in the countryside, but it's expensive and all those things. And then when he did publish, this started the feud, which we're going to have to chat about when we get to that. In his Principia book, everything he did basically was in a much more elevated language. You know, we'll see that Leibniz was all about making things simple and easy for the common reader, you know, not necessarily an advanced mathematician to read. But Newton was more along the lines of very elevated language. And he actually was more geometry based. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was using, I mean, to figure a lot of this stuff out, he used calculus, which if you've ever mm-hmm. seen someone do calculus, it's a lot of pushing symbols around the page, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a lot of like, okay, and now follow this rule and follow that rule. And it just looks like a kind of hen scratch. And mathematical attitudes were changing. And the 1600s are kind of this transitional moment. By the 1700s, people were totally on board with, you know, what we think of as a page full of algebra and that being like a useful way to do math. But I think back in the 1500s, that was seen as like, it was like your scratch work, but you didn't want to show people that. That wasn't that wasn't like <laughs> proper math. Like you come out with your page of equations, and people are like, oh, look, show show me. There's a great quote from uh, John Hobbes, who was an early 17th century philosopher. He died around early 1600s. But what's the quote from him? Is something like, yeah, he was. There's one where he calls algebraic work hen scratching, and then another one where he says it looks like the most deformed necessary business that one does in one's chambers. Which I think he means like Amazing. a bowel movement. I think that's what he's talking about. So like, it's something you have to do. You have to sit down and do out your work on paper, but you shouldn't be proud of it. You're not going to call someone into the room and be like, oh, look at what I did on this piece of paper. <laughs> which, uh, first of all, it's interesting that you say that for a bunch of reasons, because right now, in if, if you were to walk into any classroom or my classroom, at least when I was still teaching, you what you would see like I fully I'm like please show me your hen scratch all I want is your hen scratch I don't care about I mean I care about the answer like we should endeavor to get the correct answer as well as the correct hen scratch but like really the journey is more important or equally as important as the destination so that first of all that's really interesting yeah and 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 that explains also just to keep on rambling um that that explains I think part of why Newton decided to recast all his work in this older geometric language because at the time that was kind of the height of rigor if you wanted to really show that you were a serious scholar and you were you were doing it the proper way it's supposed to be done you did it in Latin and you did it using like very Euclidean geometric kind of methods. He he. So he sort of recasts a lot of it in in like like methods that Archimedes used with um kind of the method of exhaustion, mm-hmm. which was a way of thinking about infinitely small stuff without ever actually having to touch anything infinite mm-hmm. um, or anything infinitely small. So yeah. So he he rewrote the book to be it partly made it harder to follow, which I think he didn't he didn't mind being he hard didn't to care, follow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's that great line where he's like, I didn't want to be baited by the little smatterers in mathematics. <laughs> You know, the other thing that's interesting, too, is that 
So one of the mathematicians that we're going to cover at some point is Charles Dodgson, who Mm. others may know as Lewis Carroll, who wrote Alice in Wonderland. And it basically like his whole Alice in Wonderland was like, he was a huge follower of Euclid. And when they started bringing in all the algebra, he didn't like the fact that it was X that could mean multiplication or a variable or all these different things. And he was so salty about it. And it's interesting to me that, you know, we've got this thing going on for a good century before he even shows up. And and it's still, it's still like, no, I don't like this. I don't care for the algebra. Give me the Euclid stuff. And so still, like, it's taken how long? And you know what? Even today, people are like, get a, get the algebra out of, like, the letters out of math. Go away. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Yeah, right. These, these things always feel sort of novel. Whenever somebody's making a critique, it's mm-hmm. sort of, it always feels like you're the first one to make the critique. But it's like, no, people have been doing this since since Euclid since was time around. Was time. Yeah, and yeah. Charles Dodgson, by the way, I'm in good company. You know, I guess all of us instructors are because we're like, oh, my gosh, like students are unprepared. How can we get them to be prepared for whatever? And he was complaining about this very same thing back in Victorian times. So like that just, you know, it's amazing. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, no, I think there's a, there's a lot that, uh, yeah, it, it's sort of a rule of life that things have always been going on for longer than you thought. Mm-hmm. Oh. And, you know, the other thing that you were talking about with Newton, and I was just thinking about with with Emily, was that he was talking through some of the, you know, with his work in optics, part of the reason that it wasn't adopted just yet was because he basically had step one, which was the hypothesis, step two, which was the thesis, but he didn't have like anything, he couldn't come up with a convincing enough argument. It's, it's you know, he says, I don't feign hypotheses, because isn't that... <laughs> Yeah. 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 It's, that's right. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a cool feature. I think of Newton's work that it's easy to overlook going back to it, but a lot of the uh, science is maybe a hard word to use because science was not quite what we call it today, but a lot of the science at the time was really caught up in trying to like these are very philosophical questions of like, of metaphysics and like, what is matter really about? And Newton coming along and being like, eh, I don't know, planets just attract each other. There's this thing called gravity. Everybody in the universe experiences gravity. Everything is pulling on everything else. And you're like, wait, what? Newton? How, how does that happen? Like across the gaps, like everything is pulling on everything at arbitrary distances. That seems crazy. And he's like, eh, seems to be happening. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't feign, I don't feign hypotheses. Like, I, I, I'm not going to tell you why. It's not my job. I'm telling you what the math says. <laughs> Um, it is and, what it is. Yeah, yeah. And so that's a very modern attitude towards math of like, well, we've got these mathematical descriptions. Why do they work? I don't know. That's not my job to figure out. You can go <laughs> think on it yourself. But like they work. I'll, like, I'll show you. It matches all the data. These mathematical descriptions match reality. And that that wasn't really like if you look at Leibniz, he spends forever trying to think about cause and effect. And he's like, maybe everything in the universe is made of these monads, these tiny particles that have an entire universe inside them. And it's like super weird and confusing. It's very men in black. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, little galaxies around cats with necklace of the obese cat. Uh, full circle, full yeah, there, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Maybe, maybe Newton. Maybe that was that was why the cat was so important. That was Newton's why he, cat. Why you wrote it out of the history books? Yeah. Um, but like Leibniz and everybody else gets caught up in this in this kind of metaphysics, and Newton mm-hmm. is just like, okay, no, it's we're we're doing the math. The math works, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to explain why it works exactly. That's the wrong kind of question. The question is what's happening. The other thing I think is interesting too with what you just said is. There's so many different branches of like we've really split it apart into discrete branches of study today. 
Yeah. And you and I had talked, I guess, last year, and we were talking about, I grew up in Belize, and you taught in England, and Belize used to be an English colony. And we really had, you know, math class. And within that, I didn't realize this until I moved to the States. And I, you know, was actually taking classes where it was like algebra, trig, calculus, within my math class, like that was everything was entwined. And I think that's so interesting for math and science because it is entwined. You know, you there's you need a little bit of everything and everything in order to move forward. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the, the world doesn't come with labels and tags, right? You look mm -hmm. out at the world and it's just it's just this big, messy place full of stuff. And then to try to make sense of it, we start putting tags and labels on things. And, you know, we come up with pretty good tags and labels. It's like it's, it's pretty useful in the sciences to be like, OK, here's the living stuff that's made out yeah. of cells. And then here's the stuff that's smaller than that. And it's just made out of little molecules. And, you know, it, like that, that, that's useful. You know, we have biology on the one hand and chemistry on the other hand. Right. But of course, there's tons of stuff that crosses over and you mm -hmm. kind of need both of them to think about it and stuff that blurs your boundaries. Um, right. And that's true in, true in math, too. I mean, and like we think about Emily, where she wanted to write the physics textbook, chemistry was in its infancy at the time, you know, calculus obviously was in its infancy when she's writing this physics textbook to help her son. And like, what a time to be alive. Just, I mean, always, I guess, what an amazing yeah. thing to be alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, luckily, I think it's true now, too. I think now is also an amazing time to be mm -hmm. alive. It turns out just alive is an amazing thing to be. And so Indeed. whatever time you're doing it in is, yeah. is a cool time. It's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great place for us to pause. And then next time we are going to chat about Leibniz and we'll learn about his story. Yeah, I'm excited. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Infinitely Irrational. Can't get enough of the math and fun? Visit us on the web at infinitelyirrational.com for math and research behind the stories. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or email at podcast at infinitelyirrational.com. If you love this episode, subscribe, follow, and share. See you soon for the next one.